welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 20 once again where uh, we find Christ once again, uh, confronted by adversaries uh, on Wednesday. This is Wednesday of the Passion Week, uh, just a couple days uh, before Christ will be crucified. As we look at this uh, message that I've titled, uh, Proper Tribute to God, and we think about holiness, we've been singing about holiness this morning. What People wonder sometimes, what is holiness? Essentially, the term means set apart. God. You are, have set your life apart for the glory of God. That is being holy. We are in a process of sanctification or becoming Christ-like, becoming holy throughout our lives, being conformed to the image of Christ. Also, as I mentioned in here, uh, the Gentiles, and, and that was also in our scripture reading. Uh, the use of the term just Gentiles was often in scripture used as a euphemism to represent unbelievers, those who do not know Christ as Savior. So when we reference the Gentiles, that is to the unbelieving population. Uh, That is in contrast to the saints or those who have put their faith in Christ. Initially on this day that Jesus is, is today, Wednesday, initially it was the priests, the scribes, and the elders who confronted him. We, we saw that in the opening of this chapter. Uh, we'll notice in our passage today that they wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but could not because of the crowds. The crowds uh, still adored him. The scribes and the elders, they, they feared what the people might do to them. Last Sunday, in verse 27, for Resurrection Sunday, we saw the Sadducees attack, but they could not endure. Today, in verse 20, where we're going to pick up, uh, we will see that there were spies that were sent. Spies sent uh, to Jesus. And as I read, beginning in verse 20, know that these spies, this is according to Matthew chapter 22, they consisted of what were called Herodians and disciples of the Pharisees. It it seems that the Pharisees themselves, on this occasion, were not personally involved in this confrontation. They didn't participate, but were hoping that Jesus would not recognize their disciples and the Herodians that were sent who arrived undercover. The Herodians were were political operatives. They were part of the the dynasty of Herod. They supported his, his kingship, though he was not a legitimate Jewish king. Let's read together beginning in verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on Jesus that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But Jesus detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Another group silenced. You know, there, there's this coordinated effort to take down Jesus that continues through this entire day. Uh, the only thing stopping the political activists, the religious leaders, are the people. The people. Uh, if they could only turn the people against Jesus, that last obstacle then would be removed. So, you know, what would agitate this crowd? What could they say or find out about Jesus that could possibly anger the large crowd surrounding them? If you remember from our previous passages, there, there is a massive throng here of people. It is the week of Passover. Uh, these same throngs welcomed Jesus just a couple days earlier as he, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, for they were expecting he was going to use his power to liberate them from the, the oppressive occupation of Rome. The, the Jews hated the presence of Rome in their nation. Rome was oppressive. It, con- it consisted of Gentiles, or really Gentiles who... Uh, did things, uh, that they ate things that the Jews found repulsive. The, the Jews were, were offended by the activities of the Gentiles. Romans were clearly idolaters. They had all kinds of gods that they prayed to. Worst of all, just worst of all, Rome extracted very heavy taxes from Israel. Some records... Uh, suggest, record that they extracted as much as uh, a third of the average household income, the typical income. Of these taxes, a variety of taxes they had, uh, the one that was most hated, the one most hated uh, was called a poll tax, a poll tax. It was required of every Jew and equaled uh, a day's wage of a, a Roman soldier, it was, it was also the equivalent of a denarius. Uh, that was a silver coin that was minted containing the, the image of Emperor Tiberius. A day's wage was a denarius. When paying it, when paying this poll tax, it reminded the Jews of, well, of how they even paid the salaries of these Roman soldiers who they saw as oppressive. It was, it was something they very much despised. The record contained of the same event now, the record contained in, in both Matthew 22 and, and Mark chapter 12, assure us that the poll tax is the specific view, uh, specific, specific tax in view here. This is what is being asked about specifically the poll tax. Is it all right to pay the poll tax to Caesar? Without question, the spies' inquiry, it was a concealed attempt in, to turn the crowds against Jesus. 
They, 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 if they could turn the crowds against him, then they could arrest him. Uh, they put a, a lot of thought into this, folks. They put a lot of thought into this. They, they were pretty sharp fellas, these, these folks who opposed Jesus. He, he here, he's not battling a bunch of complete buffoons. These are smart folks. It's a good reminder to us, by the way, a good reminder that the, the principalities and powers, the spiritual forces that, that we face, that face us, they're formidable forces. They're formidable. If, if God permits, they can hurt us, okay? They, they can hurt us. When it comes to persecution... Paul reminded Christians, this is in Romans 8, verse 36, for his sake, meaning for Christ's sake, for God's sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us, yet nothing, as nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that, it is, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, the history of Christ's church, the long history of Christ's church, shows that the forces that threaten us, they're very real. They are very real forces. They have the capacity to arrest us, or worse, uh, even kill us if... if um, as they will actually Jesus Christ himself in just a couple more days. Just a couple more days. Uh, sometimes these evil forces even masquerade as being religious. Being religious. Verse 20 reminds us of what? Well, if you look at it, it says that these spies pretended to be righteous. Pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch Jesus in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. That's that's what they wanted to do. Uh, Folks, don't be dismayed. Don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged in a day when people who pretend to be righteous, they, they pretend to be righteous, and who even assert themselves as Christians potentially, don't be dismayed in a day when they turn you over to the authorities for the stand that you take on the Word of God. Don't don't be surprised at all. They they did the very same to Christ Jesus. The very same thing. There exist many wolves in in sheep's clothing who who will happily do the bidding of Rome. There's no shortage of those. And, and, and barring a, a, a sovereign revival, uh, a revival not, not one scheduled on the calendars of men that we put together, but a sovereign revival, a genuine revival ordained by God Himself, unless that arrives in America, that is usually judged after the revival has happened, by the way. When you look back at the first great awakening and Jonathan Edwards and the preaching there, they, they didn't know at the time immediately what the impact was going to be. In retrospect, you look back at the awakening that happened, and you see, well, that was truly a spiritual change in America. But unless something like that happens, arrive, happens to arrive on the shores of America, Christian persecution surely will. It will come. True Christians will be accused of hate speech. They already are. Will be pointed out by finger, 
by finger of those who are pretending that they're righteous, pretending to be righteous. How do I know? How do I know this? Um, Folks, early Christians were not persecuted for what they do. What, What we do, what Christians do is good. What we do is good. Jesus Christ and his apostles and the early church, the church that continues today, by the way, in many parts of the world, uh, they were martyred not for what they do, but for what they believe. Christians are, are martyred for what we believe. Christians in Rome were not burned at the stake for immoral conduct. That's not the reason that they were murdered publicly. They, they were not publicly fed to wild beasts in the Colosseums for saying that Christ is God, or even that He is a way to God, uh, but because we have the audacity to declare that He is the only way to God, the only way of salvation. Our, our doctrine that we preach that the bible uh, teaches us it exposes man as wickedly sinful we've talked about this enough before Uh, we have to repent of immorality Uh, we must trust in jesus christ alone for salvation he is the way the truth and the life alone so to fallen humanity to the gentiles to those who are unbelievers these are audacious claims They're offensive claims that everyone would have to come through the Son of God in order to acquire and be be bestowed salvation. People don't like to hear that. They want diversity. They want many paths up the mountain to meet God. They want many different ways. When we draw it down to just Christ alone, God's Son, that's when they start getting upset. That's the reason a lot of the Roman Christians in the early church were persecuted is because they would not bow down to all of the gods of Rome, but declared that there was only one God and Christ his Son. Uh, so there are many who pretend to be righteous who will be willing to come and, and to confront. Uh, when the government comes calling, there are going to be plenty of pastors agreeing that what we say about sin and behavior and salvation, that it is unloving towards our fellow Americans. There are going to be plenty who are going to declare that. They, they, they will assure the throngs of people that we are somehow misrepresenting the Bible, that, that Christ can't be the only way, and, and there will be a reassurance to the multitudes. Uh, replacement pastors, by the way, will arise and they will set the hard parts of Scripture aside and assure everyone that Jesus is unconditionally loving toward all, irrespective of religion, creed, sexual orientation. They will say He loves everybody just as they are. Am I a prophet? See in the future? No. No. It's already happening, folks. It is already occurring, and we must recognize we're far outnumbered. True Christians in America are far outnumbered by those who propose to be Christians. And uh, uh, we, we have to be ready and prepared. Uh, it's exactly the situation that we see in verse 20. Political operatives, the Herodians, team up with religious imposters, those who pretended to be righteous, in an attempt to turn the population against Christ and, by extension, all who follow Him. That was their goal, to turn 
the people against Christ and the disciples of Christ who follow him. Uh, a, a great illustration of this, a horrible, I should say, a horrible illustration of this that we've seen in the last week or two is, is in New York where they are suffering uh, some of the worst outbreak of the coronavirus. In the midst of all that, Christians wanting to express their love and share, uh, share the, the love of Christ to all, uh, those, those in Samaritan's Purse, if you've seen the news at all, Franklin, uh, Reverend Franklin Graham sent uh, uh, a portable hospital up to be, to be put up in, um, I think, right near Central Park, right, right in, in the area there, the hot spot. And Samaritan's Purse has a mobile response unit. They were very, very diligent in their response, if you don't know more about them. If you remember the Ebola outbreak in Liberia back in 2014, Samaritan's Purse and uh, this outfit of specialists, volunteer doctors and others, were among the first to go to Liberia and hunker down to help quell the spread of the Ebola virus. These are courageous folks. And they are skilled and they are professionals. They are scientists and doctors. And they went to set up in New York City. And what do you see? You see the Gentiles, the unbelievers, uh, on the microphone railing against Samaritan's Purse for what an awful thing they have done uh, to come into the city and want to serve, to do things that are good. So right now it's, it's just verbal persecution for the most part. But this is the direction that it goes. Uh, those who are pretending to be righteous and good people are pointing the finger at those who actually are righteous in Christ. Why? Well, Jesus told us in John 15, verse 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That, that's a non-negotiable there. That, that's just a few brief words of inspiration for you as we get rolling today. Just, just a little start to get us going, brighten you up maybe just a little bit. <laughs> Folks, that, that's, that's the lot that we're given, suffering. Suffering for the name of Christ, uh, for being a good representative of Him. In verse 21, the spies spread their net with flattery, all right? They questioned Jesus saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Folks, be alert when complete strangers approach with accolades. Alright? Be, be concerned then for Romans 16 verse 18 assures us by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The spies came bearing truth. You know, did you know that sometimes God's enemies can speak the truth, can bear the truth? Uh, they don't do it with pure motives. But, but there, there is not a lie presented in this passage. If you, if you take a close look at it, uh, Jesus taught correctly. He, he taught the way of God in truth. He, he was not partial to anyone, meaning his, his integrity was not swayed by power or prestige or, or by profit, money, monetary profit. Uh, he wasn't swayed by anyone. He was honest. He had integrity. He did teach in truth. These spies that came spoke the truth. 
They, they spoke the actual truth. In complete contrast to Jesus, false teachers would compromise God's truth. Jesus wouldn't. But they would compromise God's truth if doing so could accommodate some kind of benefit for them. Uh, there are many, there are many, many who will preach things that people, that the masses love to hear. There are many who will do that. Usually draws a large crowd. Large crowds usually result in large dollars, large donations. Uh, Such success often brings prestige, prominence, book deals, all kinds of things. But the Apostle Paul, he never experienced any of these. Any of these. He experienced being arrested, being persecuted. Actually, uh, though the Bible doesn't record the exact end, uh, church tradition records that those who were disciples during his time had written down that he was martyred by being beheaded in Rome. That, that's what Paul the Apostle got for his, his, his holiness and righteousness set apart for God. He didn't experience prestige, success uh, in the eyes of people. And he reminded Christians in Thessalonica, our exhortation, speaking to the church now in in Thessalonica, our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, says Paul. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from the others. That that was the walk of the apostles. They spoke truth. They did not flatter. They did not seek approval from men, but approval from God in speaking the truth. Jesus, they learned it from Jesus. Jesus did not compromise the truth. When when examining this passage, Luke chapter 20, when examining this passage, Calvin, John Calvin the Reformer, classifies men, yet not who preach outright heresy, all right, that's not what we're talking about here, but who adapt the Word of God uh, slightly for personal Gain. We're not talking about outright heretics who will deny the deity of Christ, but those who will adapt the Word of God. There's a, and for gain, for, for monetary profit. You know, recently, Rita and I experienced a, uh, a teaching. And uh, once in a while when we're out of town or when we're traveling and Pastor Weiler's preaching in our place, we'll, we'll visit another church and uh, just to find out what's going on over there. And uh, when we arrived at this, at this one, they were talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Hill, which is, which is basically um, a rehashing of the Sermon of the Mount, but later on it, it was done in uh, Bethsaida. And if you remember, there was a small boy there with a couple fish and five loaves, and the point there was Jesus' ability to feed the 5,000. The way that it was taught was surely the truth that Jesus fed the 5,000. 
But the way it was taught was the point of the story was how that little boy gave up his two fish and five loaves um, for, uh, uh, for Jesus' sake and that they gave it and the, the, the emphasis was on giving what you have that's like two fish and five loaves that you can give. And uh, that was a while back and a couple weeks ago Rita and I were just you know, going through the airwaves, finding, on what, finding out what's out there today and what people are teaching. And, uh, and Palm Sunday, go to this same, this same origin. And the lesson there was Jesus' triumphal entry, which is preached at a lot of churches, uh, some doing very well, others not as well. But uh, we, we went through that passage recently, and we know that the, the deity of Christ, His kingship, and being uh, uh, offering himself to Israel is the point of that whole passage. And the same individual basically taught the same sermon that we had heard much previously, that this passage was about the donkey that was offered, the donkey's colt that was offered to Jesus. That was what the whole focus was, is you must have a donkey at home that you can give to the work of Jesus. So again, it was all distorted for the prophet Give your fish, give your loaves, uh, give your donkey. What kind of donkey you got sitting at home was the point. And we're like, we were looking at each other. And it's like, this is the same message we had heard a couple of years earlier. Just rehashed over and over again. Sadly, that, that, the, the teaching that was there contained truth. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't taught appropriately. It was adapted for personal gain. False teachers can teach truth. They can speak truth. Of these, Calvin writes, bring back to John Calvin here now, when Paul asserts that he does not make merchandise of the Word of God, meaning using it to benefit himself, 2 Corinthians 2.17, he means that there are some persons who use dexterity and do not openly overturn sound doctrine or incur the disgrace of holding wicked opinions, but who disguise and corrupt the purity of doctrine because they are ambitious or covetous or easily turned in various directions according to their earnest desire. You know, 1 Timothy 6.5 warns that there are men and women of depraved mind, deprived of the truth, who see ministry and godliness as a means of gain. A means of gain. Rather than what ministry is meant to be and designed to be, a means of loss. That's what ministry and service is to be, as a means of loss. Because Christ cuts the word straight. He does not diverge to the left or to the right. He, he will not bend. And He's going to lose His life over it. He's going to offer his life as men divide the only thing that he owns. His garments. The only thing that he owns, men are dividing it. Uh, All while Jesus is hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of many, freely offering himself to accommodate the salvation of men. And this is what the men are doing, dividing up his garments. You know, folks, we, we ought to have a real problem with preachers who enrich themselves with large estates off the gospel. That's just the fact. You know, most have compromised integrity somewhere when that happens. Calvin continues. 
So then, he ought to be reckoned a true teacher who does not introduce the contrivances of men or depart from the pure word of God, but gives out, as it were, with his hands what he has learned from the mouth of God. And, and who, from a sincere desire for, of edification, accommodates his doctrine to the advantage and salvation of the people and does not debase it by any disguise. That, that's solid teaching right there from John Calvin. That we do not disguise what we teach as being righteous when in reality it is to, to benefit ourselves. These men who approach Jesus uh, in religious disguise, they're frauds. They're frauds. And in verse 22, they spring this trap on him. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We're assured that Jesus detects their trickery immediately. If he says it's lawful to pay the poll tax, massive crowds are going to rail against him. If he declares it's not lawful to pay the, uh, the poll tax, the Herodians immediately then become witnesses who heard him to turn him into the Roman authorities as an insurrectionist. Either answer, they're going to get uh, what they desire is that Jesus will be apprehended. Doing what he generally does, this is Jesus at work right here, he, he, he turns the whole occasion into a teaching moment for the crowds. You know, mo- most of the time when we're reading through this passage, uh, we're going to pass right over this without perceiving the main implication of this image that Jesus talks about. But the crowds get it. The crowds get it, and we will too in just a couple minutes. Jesus begins by asking them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness, literally in the Greek, whose image? Whose image and inscription does it have? And and they said, Well, Caesar's. Yeah, it's Caesar's image stamped on that coin. Uh, This is one of the reasons, by the way, that the Pharisees declared publicly that they they just really hated paying uh, the tax. It's because it had Caesar's image stamped on the coin. Therefore, they said that it was idolatrous because it had a, a graven image on the coin. They were right. They were right. The denarius was idolatrous. They concluded that rightly, but not for the reason that they claimed. Not for why they claimed. Folks, I'm going to show you here right now. You probably recognize this. What is that? That's $5, right? Five bucks. Um, You tell me, is this image idolatrous? Do do you get down on your knees at night and pray to Abraham Lincoln? No. No, that's ridiculous. Um, Thought never enters our mind, does it? That we would idolize that image. We, we, have, um, we have money uh, that we use for all kinds of things. Can, can money be idolatrous? Oh, it, it can. Colossians 3 verse 5 tells us that greed itself amounts to idolatry. M- money can be an idol. 
to people, and it doesn't have to even have a face on it. It could be bars of gold that are, that are sitting in your safe or in your deposit box. It could be simply a balance that is expressed on your bank statement. It doesn't have to have a face on it. Money can become an idol. An image doesn't make it idolatrous. We previously discovered about the Pharisees in, in Luke chapter 16. Uh, what, what have we found about them concerning money? It, th- this came immediately after Jesus had told the Pharisees in the crowds that you cannot serve two masters, for you will either hate one and, and, and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right? But we're told... When Jesus said this to the Pharisees, that they scoffed at Jesus. They, they mocked Him. Why? Well, Luke 16, verse 14 tells us why. It says, because the Pharisees were lovers of money. They loved money. Uh, here's the rub. Here's the rub. The Pharisees proclaimed openly that the reason they chafed at paying taxes... The reason that they hated it so much was because the money possessed Caesar's image. But the real reason that they hated paying the taxes was because they didn't want to part with it. They wanted to keep it. They, they, they loved their money. That was what was truly their motive in their heart. You know, I'm not going to sidetrack right now on uh, the part of our passage that speaks about paying taxes. You know, that's an important part of our, our faith. I know that Pastor Weiler has sufficiently taught about this in Bible Life Group recently uh, concerning government. And uh, uh, we are to render respect and honor and, and tax to, to whom it is due. We pay our taxes. Uh, government is for our good. You've learned that in Bible Life Group. Uh, Pastor Weiler, by the way, is going to resume that series when we get back together again on, on God and government. Uh, Hopefully that won't be too much longer. But the reason generally that people hate paying taxes isn't because they don't like nice roads and safe bridges and and snow removal if you're in the wrong part of the country. Even, Even military defense. It's not as if we don't like 911 emergency service and, uh, and ambulatory service and, and response, fire and rescue. It isn't even as if we don't enjoy the police chasing down the bad guys. Better them than me, right? That, that isn't the reason. Uh, we all want to enjoy these blessings that tax uh, provides, or, or at least are a conduit to provide. What we hate, what we hate, we hate parting with Abe here. That's what we don't like doing. We want to keep him. And we'll find all kinds of ways in order to avoid doing what God has commanded if we can keep old, honest Abe. Pharisees were idolaters. They were idolaters. Um, so Jesus asks this question, whose image is on it? Whose image does that denarius bear? Caesar's? Well then, render unto Caesar... What is Caesar's? The interpretation there, be a good citizen. Be a good citizen. Follow the law. Pay your taxes. 
The prophet Daniel had already taught them that God removes kings and he establishes kings, as Daniel 2.21. Daniel even assured the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, find this in Daniel 4, 4 verse 32, that sovereignty has been removed from you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So whoever is in power, whether it is Nero or Nebuchadnezzar or your favorite president, president or the president that you hate, God has established them as an authority. We are to show honor where there is honor. They, they should have perceived this, by the way, that God uh, works in the heart of, of rulers and kings from Pharaoh during the Exodus. And Pharaoh had worked on the heart, or God had worked on the heart of Pharaoh. And Proverbs 21 verse 1 says that God turns the, the king's heart wherever he wishes. Wherever he wishes. God is sovereign over the human heart. Just maybe, just maybe, God allowed that denarius to have Caesar's image stamped on it. That we might remember that we have a responsibility to him, to God, in remaining in subjection to governing authorities because there is, Romans 13 tells us, there is no authority that exists that is not from God. So we are good citizens. Pay up. That's basically what Jesus is saying. Pay up. Quit loving your money so much that you can't serve God. That image serves to remind you that that you've been charged by God with an obligation to pay your taxes. But that isn't the predominant lesson in this passage, is it? It's not. It's not. The spiritual truth we are to grasp isn't paying a tribute to Caesar at all, is it? Jesus says, Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God the things that belong to God. The image of Caesar is impressed on a coin. Where do we find God's image impressed? Where do we find a reflection of God's image? Well, the Hebrews knew what Genesis taught. And God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So, you've been resentfully paying tribute to Caesar for eons now and The real question is, when are you going to start paying tribute to God? When are you going to start reflecting that image? The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
The question at hand isn't the image of Caesar on a coin, but the image of God impressed on man. That, that's the, the point. God is pure and sinless and holy and perfect. What kind of reflection are you? You know, for New Testament believers, are you conformed to the image of Christ? Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Who, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 assures, is the exact image of God. Do we reflect God in Christ? Uh, notice in verse 26. Luke 20, verse 26. Notice this. They were amazed at his answer. They became silent. They had nothing more to say. There's no other answer to that. Uh, this is, by the way, we need to, to uh, recognize that this is immediately before they persecute and kill him. What is your reflection of God? First uh, Peter chapter 4. You know, that, that is the astonishing passage that I read to you earlier. First Peter chapter 4. Christ is about to suffer and die for sins in approximately two days. That's where we're at right now. Why? Why is he going to suffer and die at the hands of evil men? It is because Jesus bears the perfect, sinless reflection of God. That's why. He's a perfect reflection of God. And the unregenerate sinner, the Gentile, hates that reminder, that image in Christ, that reminder that they're going to have to pay up to a holy God. They, they hate that image of God in Christ. Listen to Peter in verse 1. This is our command as Christians to pay up. Therefore, Christ, uh, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer according to the lusts of men, but according to the will of God. Folks, at first glance, pow! Think about it. It appears as though suffering serves as a method or a cause for sanctification and holiness. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. But that's not what this passage teaches. It's not. Instead, it is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Sanctification, holiness, purity is the reason for the suffering. Peter rather proposes the one who has suffered in the flesh suffers because he or she has ceased from sinning. That's the reason they're suffering. They're bearing the image again. Just as Christ bore God's image. And the balance of this passage supports that premise. For Verse 3 says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, uh, of lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they, speaking of your old friends, 
In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you. See, the persecution comes because you don't run with them anymore. The Greek word is a Greek word, blaspheme. It means they blaspheme you, they, they, they curse you because you don't run with them in their sin anymore. That's the persecution beginning to come. But now rather, you live for the will of God, according to the will of God. You're not living according to the lust of the flesh any longer. And due to the indwelling Holy Spirit who has made us born again, your old friends, they start to see that image of God reflected in you again. Or reflected in you because you're born again. They see it just as they saw it in Christ. And they don't like it. They don't like it. You are therefore, by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God being conformed to the image of Christ, and they begin to despise you for it. They begin to not like you. You look a little too much like Jesus who looked a little too much like God, actually a perfect representation of the living God. Suffering and persecution, folks, it is a prominent theme in Peter, especially First Peter. Prominent theme, suffering of Christians. In chapter 2, Peter says, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, say that, I'd say this to the uh, Reverend Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse, If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God, for you have been called for this purpose. That is our purpose, to suffer for doing right, for doing godliness and holiness. In chapter 3, beginning around verse 14, Peter writes, If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, look look again at the topic there. If you are to suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You you are blessed. And, And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Again, they're not being persecuted for doing what is good. It's because they reflect the image of Christ. For it is better, writes Peter, if God should will it so, that, if you, that, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than what is, for doing what is wrong. It, it is, if it is the will of God, it is, it is good to suffer for what is doing right. Suffering for your, your purity and your holiness. Folks, that looks exactly like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 34 tells us that early Christians, they were both imprisoned and they suffered the seizure of their property for doing what was right, for doing what is good. And that passage, that same passage in Hebrews, assures such folks, those folks who are suffering, that the future maintains a great reward for them who have suffered according to the will of God. A great reward for what they have done. Folks, do you... Do you think that God is pleased when Christians suffer? Oh, when it's for doing right, yes. When, it, when it's doing wrong, no. But when it is for doing right and we suffer for the holiness and righteousness of God, uh, God is very pleased. It looks just like His Son. Suffered for being holy. 
Folks, our, our desire is to become a spitting image of Christ, to bear His image, to be conformed and continue being conformed throughout our lifetime. So, so only two days from the cross now, and, G, and Jesus is saying, he, he's, in His perfect righteousness, He is declaring, offer to God what is God's. And he's going to do that. He's going to offer a sinless, perfect sacrifice to God. Put away filthiness, deceit, sexual immorality, greed. Put that stuff all away and get ready to suffer for it. Get ready to suffer for it. Ostracization from your old group of friends, at least in part. Physical suffering and seizure of property if you're lucky if you're lucky, because God is pleased with such obedience. If need be, even more so, some gave their life. Give a proper tribute to God. Offer Him holiness. You know, I'm, I'm going to close out our time here by suggesting one of the premier purposes in, in all of this suffering that, that, that we go through, what Christ went through what the early church went through one of the premier purposes of of restoring god's image in us the reflection of us to give our lives to the glory of christ it is for the purpose of evangelism all right that restored image in us where we properly reflect uh, god's image most of us uh, christians you know might might actually think that purity and holiness and and godliness and dignity and integrity, all of these things, uh, looking too much like Jesus. We might think, you know, that might be a turn-off to others. That, that might be a turn-off to those seekers who are looking for Jesus. And some of us will even fear that, you know, suffering, bringing up suffering and, 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 and sacrifice, that would actually push seekers away. Not if they're really seeking. Not if through the Holy Spirit they are actually seeking by way of the Holy uh, Spirit drawing them to repentance. Purity and suffering actually has the opposite effect. It actually draws them closer to God. Uh, here, here are two, two more brief citations from Peter before we go because Peter is all about suffering for the faith. He's all about it. The first is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, and he declares how suffering persecution, how, how it opens doors for evangelism. Listen to this. He begins first by quoting an Old Testament psalm. The one who desires life, to love and to see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You know, Scripture says that persons who are being convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin, true seekers... 
genuine seekers of the living God, they will be drawn, they will be attracted to you and your witness when you suffer persecution and loss for the sake of Christ. That's what they're drawn to. Sometimes you'll encounter folks, by the way, that will suggest that Peter here just promotes a, a completely passive form of evangelism. You know, I've heard it, heard it said before uh, from this passage that you know we don't need to intentionally evangelize anyone, that, that instead we should just idly stand around, stand by, and pray and just wait, wait for some stranger to come up that'll ask you about Jesus, randomly approach and ask, you know, would you give me an account for the hope that is in you? You know, really think about how often has that happened to you? Say never. Never happens. That is an incredibly bad interpretation of this passage. The reason people in this passage are approaching and asking is because they marvel at your willingness to suffer loss and persecution for the name of Christ. It's also, by the way, the reason that the Christian church expands best, fastest, and strongest in persecuted sections of the globe. Persecution builds the church. Evangelism is always active. We are always active in it. It's a contact sport. All right? Just one more from Peter before we depart, showing just how godly and righteous behavior, your proper tribute to God, how it is employed by God to draw sinners to eternal redemption. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles excellent among the unbelieving Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, they may, because of your good deeds, glorify God in the day of visitation. The way that unbelieving Gentiles are going to glorify God in the day of visitation, the only way that's going to happen is if they believe and are redeemed. Peter says your goodness, your purity, your holiness becomes a mechanism that God the Holy Spirit uses to achieve salvation. It's your witness. It's your testimony of suffering the same way Christ suffered. That, that, old, that old gang that you used to run, run with, the old party crowd... Uh, when you turn to holiness, oh, folks, they're, they're, they're going to ostracize you. They're going to slander you because you found the way. Uh, but very often, very often there's going to be someone in that crowd or in the shadows of that crowd. They may not be openly verbal at first. They might just watch as they observe your good deeds. There, there's going to be someone in that crowd very often that the Holy Spirit is going to draw to your willingness to suffer loss and to, and to endure humiliation for the sake of Christ. Two true seekers are, are drawn to that commitment to Jesus Christ. A genuine seeker of God will be attracted by the Holy Spirit by your resolve to live for Christ and put off your old ways. Uh, uh, they too, as they watch their deeds, will decide that this I will trust in this Christ who is holy and righteous because this person is a living testimony in their, in their holiness and righteousness and thereby that individual will glorify God in, their day of, in his day of visitation. 
that's never going to happen if you don't come out and be separate, folks. It's never going to happen if you never come out from that crowd and be separate. Uh, if, they don't, if they don't sense a distinct change in your behavior from your pre-Christian life to your uh, after becoming a Christian life, if, if they don't sense that, you don't have any witness. You don't have any testimony. If you're just hanging out in the same way that you were, doing the same things that you did, nobody's going to be convicted by that. Here's the question, and we'll close. Christ suffered. Are you a reflection of his suffering? Have you lost any friends? Have you lost any relationships? You know, have, have any of your old drinking buddies quit calling? Have any of your unbelieving family members distanced themselves from you because of your testimony uh, for Christ? Uh, His siblings did. Jesus' siblings did. They didn't believe in him uh, during his three-year ministry. Have you suffered any loss at all for Jesus? Uh, Are there any, any unbelieving girlfriends or boyfriends who have left you because you have purified your ways? If not, why? It's a question only you can answer. Let's pray. And then Gerald will have a closing verse for us. Father, incredibly challenging material as uh, we look at your goodness and your righteousness as the perfect holy standard. Being God in the flesh, Christ was a perfect reflection. The the fall into sin and disobedience marred that reflection in us. And Lord, uh, uh, being redeemed by your Holy Spirit, we are in a process of sanctification. We are in a process of being conformed. It is a continual continual, uh, experience of being conformed to the image of Christ. And we know that we will not be perfected until the day that we see you, Lord. That each of us is struggling down this path of battling against the flesh and reaching out and longing for your holiness and righteousness. And Lord, we pray that through your Spirit, since it is your will that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, that is your holy will, we ask that you would achieve that in us. That your will would be achieved in us and that we would be a pleasing reflection of your Son. Uh, If that would be through courage and preaching, through, um, Lord, loss and sacrifice, whether that reflection is in serving and and showing compassion towards those who are ill, whether that uh, image of Christ is in doing good works and speaking truth and offering forgiveness to those who repent. Lord, let us be the same. Let us be a a good reflection of you, Lord. And we know it being a work of the Spirit uh, in our hearts, along combined with the Word of God that sanctifies us. As you said, uh, your Son said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Lord, we ask that you would sanctify us as a church. Lord, help us to be patient that we would endure uh, not only the flesh, but persecution and even one another, Lord. We're, we're all on this path of transition, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
Lord, finish it for your glory and that of your Son. It is in Christ's precious name that we pray.